is Tom, and welcome to a new episode of the History Matters podcast. The aim of this podcast is to go into some depth on various mostly modern historical issues with a particular emphasis on military and diplomatic history. And in this episode of History Matters, we are continuing on with the European Neutral series, but remaining with the Kingdom of Norway, picking up right where we left off last time in November of 1918, and then moving through the interwar period up to and terminating at the German invasion of April 1940. Hopefully that sounds of some interest to you. As ever, I owe a debt of gratitude to some superb literature on the topic, beginning with an absolute classic, Olav Riss 2001, Norway's Foreign Relations A History. Uh, also, as in the past few podcasts, Patrick Salmon's comparative work, Scandinavia and the Great Powers 1890-1940, to uh, but he did also contribute a chapter specifically on Norway to the edited collection of essays titled European Neutrals and Non-Belligerents During the Second World War, which I found to be very useful. And there is also an excellent article by Magnus Skodvin in the Scandinavian Journal of History called Norwegian Neutrality and the Question of Credibility. Also something else I found really useful was the chapter titled Neutrality Guard or Preparations for War for Norwegian Armed Forces and the Coming of the Second World War, which was by a guy named T. Christiansen, which was in the ever-excellent Small Powers in the Age of Total War. Uh, and last but by no means least was the strategy of phony war. Britain, Sweden and the Iron Ore Question, 1939 by 1940 by Thomas Munch Peterson, which is uh, really great on strategic and operational issues facing Norway, as well as Sweden, obviously. Um, do check any of these out if you have either the will or the time. And now to kick things off with the Norwegian National Anthem. Surprisingly, it wasn't actually officially adopted until about two years ago, uh, 2019 I believe, so in terms of anthems it was really very late, despite having been in common usage since the 1860s. This is mostly because it was vying with so many other popular folk songs, like the one we heard last week. The song is called Yes, We Love This Country, and let's have a little listen. something a little more instrumental and slightly too operatic for my tastes. Anyway, let us move on swiftly to Norway at the start of the interwar period. Although having remained neutral through the course of the First World War, Norway's unofficial status as a so-called neutral ally had won it a friendly ear with the Allied powers at the post-war peace conferences. The sacrifice of 49% of the Norwegian merchant fleet, as well as the loss of more civilian merchantmen at sea than anyone else, meant that Norway's contribution was rewarded by the recognition of Norwegian sovereignty over Svalbard, or Spitsbergen, and Jan Mayen. Some in the Norwegian government wished for even more, and continued to press its historic claims to East Greenland, although in 1921, as previously discussed in another podcast, Denmark extended its sovereignty, formerly confined to the west, over the whole island. As Norwegian fishermen and hunters had been using bases in East Greenland for centuries, Norway protested this move, but sought only to push its claims through international arbitration, a process it was to eventually lose in 1933. This was because the Norwegian foreign minister had previously made the verbally binding claim that the plans of the Royal Danish government, respecting Danish sovereignty over the whole of Greenland, would be met with no difficulties on the part of Norway, 
if in return Denmark would raise no objections to the Norwegian acquisition of Spitsbergen. The International Court of Justice at The Hague agreed that such a statement was binding on Norway, and so it was forced to withdraw its claims to East Greenland in favour of its southern Scandinavian neighbour. There were a few other smaller diplomatic issues too that sprung up in this period. Soon after the end of the war, Norway became involved in disputes with France, Portugal and Spain as it decided to pursue a policy of prohibition in 1919. The Norwegian Foreign Service failed to predict the fallout this would cause among the wine-growing nations of Europe. There were also disputes with the new Soviet Union over hunting and fishing rights in the Arctic, and although the USSR did recognise Norwegian sovereignty over Spitsbergen in 1924, it remained interested in mining rights in the archipelago as Norway made little effort to secure its sovereignty despite the Soviet Union's clear intention. There was also the continued dispute with Britain over fisheries limits, one of the most politically and economically sensitive aspects of Norwegian life. The dispute had begun before the war, but reached a new intensity in the late 1920s and 1930s, as the Norwegian government attempted to impose a four-mile limit for its own fishing vessels in response to the emergence of modern long-range trawler fleets, particularly from Britain, but also Germany and France, that suddenly threatened traditional Norwegian fishing waters. Norway was the only major fishing nation which did not go over to trawling in the interwar period, and despite proclaiming a four-mile limit in 1934, foreign trawlers continued to intrude, leading to a long-running diplomatic dispute with London, which continued to push for a three-mile limit instead that followed the contour of the Norwegian coast. As Norwegian foreign policy had traditionally been dominated by these economic concerns, it, perhaps understandably, lost sight of other more pressing issues relating to national security during the interwar period. It is also worth mentioning in passing a certain change from 1924, whereby the capital of Norway, formerly known as Christiana, was renamed Oslo. The precise reasons for this renaming have long been disputed, as previously Oslo had only been a village, then suburb, outside of Christiana, but somehow now this came to be the city proper. 28,000 signatures against the proposal were collected at the time, but nonetheless, Oslo is how the capital of Norway will now be referred to. The early part of this period seemed to offer neutral Norway continued and even enhanced security. The threat from Germany was greatly diminished, and the Soviet Union was devastated by civil war and initial industrial backwardness. In 1929, the Norwegian Prime Minister was even able to declare that any threat over land from Sweden was also now inconceivable, and the unchallenged British Navy was still an effective shield of the Norwegian coast. As regards Britain, one lesson that many Norwegian political elites drew from the First World War was that ultimately, British strategic decision-makers would always hold back from violating Norwegian neutrality. As the eminent historian of Scandinavia Patrick Salmon has put it, Ever since Amundsen beat Scott to the South Pole, Norwegians had been defying the British and getting away with it. The official histories of the war published in England and eagerly read by some in Norway seemed to confirm that British self-restraint and a certain sense of honour could probably be relied upon in the future to resist demands, whilst still relying on Britain for an informal guarantee of its territorial integrity. Norway could certainly not be so sure about its other formidable neighbours, the Soviet Union and Germany, but until the late 1930s, neither power seemed to pose a serious threat to Norwegian security. This unofficial British guarantee perhaps explains the general indifference to strategic affairs displayed by most Norwegian politicians in the interwar period, and a much greater focus by governments on issues relating to social welfare. Moreover, in the years following the armistice in 1918, Norwegian public debate was marked by popular anti-militarism and pacifism. However, in contrast to Denmark, 
these impulses were largely ended by the course of the Spanish Civil War, especially within the Norwegian labour movement. In contrast to many on the Danish social democratic left, it now seemed politically naive to ignore the threat posed by the rise of fascism, and the option pursued by Denmark of almost complete disarmament was never seriously undertaken in Norway. Despite possessing such limited military and economic means, a policy of alignment with one of the great powers, or full military cooperation with the other Scandinavian powers, was still never seriously considered by Norway. Norwegian neutrality had by this time become a cultural attitude that underpinned all considerations of foreign policy. Even the limited military cooperation with the Nordic countries in matters of intelligence exchange and coordination of air and maritime surveillance, which came into existence in the latter part of the 1930s, was highly controversial. To go any further than that was unthinkable, and indeed, why bother to do so when the British informal guarantee could always be called upon? Many in Norway felt that they already had the best of both worlds, having the supposed moral virtues of a policy of neutrality while still having their sovereignty and security underwritten, in the last case, by the British Royal Navy. Olaf Rist, a leading historian of Norwegian foreign policy, sees Norwegian foreign policy during these years as a compromise between ideals and self-interests, a policy aimed at non-alliance in times of peace and neutrality in case of war. The main goal was always to secure Norway's political and economic independence, while simultaneously retaining its westward Atlantic orientation, in particular its traditionally close relations with Britain, in order to protect its commercial and shipping interests. The implicit assumption was that Britain's own strategic interests would prevent it from allowing other powers to invade Norway. Norway's foreign policy was thus a combination of neutralism leading towards isolationism, and reliance on Britain for defence assistance if necessary. Such an attitude has been aptly described by Rist as a policy of effortless security. Norwegian neutrality was also partly undermined in the early interwar period by the decision to join the League of Nations, after the Norwegian Parliament gave its consent in March of 1920, with a considerable minority voting against. As seen with other smaller neutrals, there was much concern about Norway being forced into sanctions or other forms of collective action against its will. Norway nevertheless accepted membership in the League, not only because this body offered the prospect of international affairs regulated through the rule of law, but also because of the accession of Norway's security guarantor, the United Kingdom, which effectively made Norway's non-membership out of the question. In common with the other Scandinavian countries, Norway sought to weaken Article 16 of the Covenant of the League of Nations, which implied that League members should implement economic sanctions against aggressor states. Whilst international disarmament was a popular topic at the League, there was little enthusiasm for it within Norway, and the defence cuts that did take place were simply linked to reducing public expenditure. Norway's attitude to disarmament can clearly be seen with its participation in the World Disarmament Conference held in Geneva from 1932 to 1934. Even compared to the other Scandinavian countries at the conference, the Norwegian delegation was strikingly small, and the Norwegian government was the most reluctant among its neighbours to outline a concrete and committed disarmament policy. Norway's fears about the League eroding its neutral status were later confirmed in the 1930s after being forced to take part in the sanctions imposed on Japan and Italy in the wake of the invasions of Manchuria and Abyssinia. Despite its having joined the League, the strongest impulse in Norwegian post-war policy was to return to the neutral isolation the country had enjoyed before 1914. 
All in all, Norway cut a flustered figure in Geneva, propounding the enthusiastic rhetoric of internationalism and peace on the one hand, while demonstrating a tendency to shy away from engagements that carried any kind of price tag on the other. After the Italian attack on Abyssinia in 1935 and the German remilitarization of the Rhineland in 1936, Norway, in conjunction with the other smaller neutrals, shifted back to a traditional status of neutrality in order to avoid being drawn into any attempt at collective defence by the League. By 1938, this break with the League was complete, and Norway once again stood alone. Now shifting focus slightly to the Norwegian economy. Despite economic difficulties, the high rate of unemployment and the many labour conflicts, the interwar years were a period of vigorous expansion, and the country's industrial production increased by around 70%. Yet this was starting from a very low level, and was mostly in areas unrelated to heavy industry with military applications, and Norway would remain without a significant industrial base with which to rearm when the international climate became grim in the later 1930s. Norwegian trade remained dominated by that with Britain, but Germany too became an important trading partner, and during the 1920s even overtook Britain as the leading exporter to Norway, until the 1930s when Britain recovered the lead once again. Britain was able to ensure that Norway was forced to give a direct undertaking that 70% of its country's annual coal imports would come from the UK, compared to only 47% made mandatory for Sweden, a clear sign of Norway's poor bargaining power compared to its eastern neighbour. As political relations between Britain and Germany deteriorated in the later 1930s, commercial competition became transformed into a contest for economic and political influence over a region whose geographical position and natural resources ensured that it would be of even greater strategic significance in a future war than it had been in 1914-1918. Indeed, much of the interwar Norwegian industrial expansion was directly related to resource extraction the new sources of non-ferrous minerals, such as nickel, which were becoming of crucial importance for any advanced war economy. Norway also uses imports of manganese and chromium ores for the manufacture of ferromanganese and ferrochrome, which were then exported to Germany. Although Sweden has become the most famous supplier of iron ore to Germany, Norway too began to meet a small but significant proportion of German requirements, which had been mined in Finnmark since 1906, and production of this crucial resource greatly increased between the wars. The expansion of the Norwegian pelagic whaling industry during the interwar period offered a solution to Germany's chronic deficiency in fats. Germany's dependence on imports of whale oil, despite the expansion of its own whaling fleet through the hiring of Norwegian crews and ships, led a prominent official of Germany's four-year plan to declare early in 1939 that the long-term survival of the Norwegian whaling industry was a matter of vital interest to Germany. Also important for our purposes is to mention the severe spending constraints faced by post-war Norwegian governments. Lacking any kind of significant war profits tax of a type pioneered in Denmark, the Norwegian government racked up considerable debt during the war, which in conjunction with the later Great Depression led to severe cuts for many aspects of public expenditure, but particularly the armed forces. Being an export-driven economy, fully integrated with world trade via its impressive merchant marine, Norway was more exposed than the other Scandinavian neutrals to the effects of the economic crisis of the 1930s, and had little choice but to target its own armed forces for cuts. This now leads us on to say something directly about Norwegian defence policy and its armed forces in this period. There was a fundamental division in Norwegian strategic thinking about whether to prepare for a classic, conventional, large-scale great power attack, or whether to merely organise solely for unintended breaches of neutrality. 
In general, the Army and Navy championed the former view, as that would clearly require a consistently large commitment to defence spending. Most Norwegian politicians generally favoured the latter idea, however, for two reasons – economic resources and geography. It was felt that Norway was still too remote on the northern periphery of Europe to warrant huge defence expenditure, and that as the Norwegian economy was inextricably woven into the commercial systems of Germany and Great Britain, neither side would wish to upset the proverbial apple cart and potentially halt the export of valuable raw materials for their munitions industries or stop the export of fish. Furthermore, Narvik was now the major transit hub for the export of Swedish iron ore, which was vital to the German arms industry. The issue of this ore will certainly be discussed at greater length during a forthcoming podcast in Sweden, but it is important to note its value to Germany already at this stage. Indeed, there were many involved in British naval planning who began to refer to Narvik as the Gibraltar of Northern Europe, although this term was also sometimes applied to the Norwegian southern coastline in general. The question of geography has already been mentioned, but it bears repeating that even remote Norway had a geostrategic significance. For Britain, it still remained necessary to guard the Norwegian coast in order to shore up against a possible German breakout into the Atlantic through Norwegian territorial waters or by seizing a strong point on the south coast for forward naval operations. This sensitive geographical position represented an enormous challenge from 1900 to 1940, even though the majority of Norwegian politicians tended to disregard it after 1918. Norway's rugged geography proved to be a real headache for its defence planners. Norway's main mobilisation areas were in eastern and southern Norway, whilst the most likely operational theatres along the coast were long distances from these areas, which made timely decisions about force deployment critical. On the one hand, defending such a vast and exposed coastline required the maintenance of a large standing force, coastal artillery forts and naval mines, situated at the approaches to the major towns and urban areas, but on the other hand, Norway might also need a smaller, modern fast reaction force to respond to any attempts by either Britain or Germany to seize a naval base on the coast, like Narvik or Bergen. Striking a balance between these oft-contradictory needs constituted a formidable task for a Norwegian defence community that was, in general, severely underfunded during this period. Indeed, the economic constraints are generally considered to have been so severe that one historian has called the Norwegian armed forces in the interwar period as being in a state of operational hibernation. The Norwegian armed forces were reduced in two main stages, in 1927 and 1933, with the main burden of cuts falling on the army, which was forced to endure the halting of field exercises and experience virtually non-existent acquisitions of new armaments. Norwegian conscripts now had by far the shortest training period in Europe, and although the training time varied somewhat in this period, it ranged from only 48 days to less than 100. The result was that the old Norwegian defence establishment was retained, at least on paper, but a huge number of battalions were given reserve status and neither equipped nor trained in peace. The act that passed for starting in 1933 reduced the number of infantry battalions that should be ready for mobilisation from 55 to only 16. The idea behind such drastic reductions was to allow savings to be channelled into modern armaments and training exercises for the remaining core battalions, but the required funding never actually materialised and the Norwegian army simply metastasized. As one historian has observed, this meant the army became a kind of paper tiger, with a large standing establishment existing on paper but lacking any kind of real operational capability. It was only in 1934-35 
but the Norwegian Labour government, alarmed at the deteriorating international situation, began to remedy this state of affairs by almost doubling defence expenditure, and by 1939 almost a third of government spending was allocated to defence. However, both the army and navy struggled to even spend the funding it was given, as demand for armaments picked up across Europe, and it was a constant struggle to find any spare industrial capacity for Norwegian defence requirements, with Norway itself possessing only a single factory for munitions and another for small arms, and nothing at all for heavier, more capital-intensive defence equipment. Norway at least did possess some native air manufacturing capability and a naval shipyard that was capable of building smaller vessels, although it should be said that all of these industrial assets were located in the more exposed areas of southern Norway. So, gutted by defence cuts, the dormant Norwegian military proved impossible to regenerate at such short notice, even though the overall framework and core institutions had been maintained through the years of cuts, at least on paper. By the time of the German invasion, a significant part of the new defence allocations remained unspent, as the armed forces had no native arms industry into which to channel their surplus funds. The situation for what was regarded as the junior service, the Norwegian Navy, seemed equally gloomy. The British naval attaché in Oslo reported in 1936 that promotion is extremely slow, material is largely out of date, money is very scarce. Most Norwegian military vessels were only fully equipped and operational during the summer months, with many ships mothballed out of season or used for training purposes. Much of the crew for these vessels had to be drawn from the merchant marine, and were usually not available at short notice. In addition, much of the support facilities necessary for operations along the whole length of the Norwegian coast had not yet been fully developed, and were focused on the more developed southern coastline, allowing for significant operations only around the Oslo Fjord and the Skagerrak. With the exception of some obsolescent armoured artillery ships, the Norwegian Navy consisted mostly of small vessels, including 43 torpedo boats, six mine layers and minesweepers, as well as five submarines dating from before the First World War, and a further six commissioned in the 1920s and built in Germany. In 1936, the first of a series of six destroyers was launched, as it was felt that an enhanced submarine capability would be vital, as it was German submarine operations and British countermeasures that had brought Norway to the brink of war in 1917. While such forces might seem incapable of seriously challenging the naval assets of any belligerent great power, it is worth remembering that given Norway's excellent defensive geography, with prodigious usage of torpedoes, naval mines and coastal artillery, Norway was still able to achieve a remarkable level of naval defence on a limited budget. The naval mine is one of the more unremarked and underrated tools of naval warfare used in this period, and the deployment of extensive minefields covered by torpedo ships would certainly pose formidable obstacles for any invader. The coastal artillery, working operationally together with the fleet, made up a force multiplying system which represented an almost impenetrable barrier when fully mobilised. The effectiveness of these coastal defences can be illustrated by the fact that the Oskarberg Fortress, located in the Oslo Fjord, sank the German heavy cruiser Blücher in April 1940, even though it was only partly mobilised by reservists. The British Royal Navy also calculated a probable loss of freehold battleships if a decision were made to penetrate the fortress at the entrance of the Trondheim Fjord during the campaign of 1940. So although the years of economic austerity in theory hit the Norwegian Navy just as hard as the army, its blushes were saved to a certain degree by the ready availability of cheap and effective defensive weaponry and an almost unique coastal topography that multiplied the effects of such tools. The small Norwegian air forces were divided between the army and navy, 
and its development was near static in the early interwar period due to lack of funds, and it was not until 1937 that a parliamentary commission considered its expansion, but the meagre funding that was allocated meant the Air Force was still largely only fit for surveillance and observation duties, with the exception of the Navy's torpedo squadron which was regarded as reasonably effective. Most of the funds available had to be used to establish basic infrastructure in the north of the country, especially stations for seaplanes. An air warning system was also one of the very few areas of cooperation with military potential that came from interwar Scandinavian cooperation, with the monitoring of the skies of the Skagerrak and Kattegat undertaken jointly in cooperation with Denmark and Sweden. It is fair to say that much of Norwegian defence planning felt trapped by a certain sense of paradox. Britain seemed to be the only likely power with the capability to violate Norwegian neutrality, but that power was simultaneously also the chief guarantor of Norwegian security. German aggression, whilst considered possible, always seemed like a remote possibility, far too risky for them to undertake while the British Royal Navy retained superiority in the North Sea and the Baltic approaches. Some Norwegian military planners were beginning to challenge this assumption in the mid-1930s, one such individual was Colonel Otto Ruger, chief of the Norwegian General Staff, who argued in 1935 that Germany might have an independent interest in seizing bases in southern Norway and would not necessarily act only in response to a British move. He also regarded the British Royal Navy as an increasingly uncertain barrier against the German landing, particularly due to developments in air warfare, which I will touch upon in a moment. Ruger even personally oversaw a joint Army-Navy exercise in 1937 on the southwest coast that envisaged a German combined operations invasion. But such voices of warning were few and easily ignored, and were not even a unanimous view within Norway's own military, let alone its political classes, who continued to believe that the overwhelming strength of the British Royal Navy made such a scenario totally unrealistic. But in Ruger's view, modern military technology and new operational concepts had made such a scenario far more likely than in 1914. The constant technological improvements made in the field of military aviation proved especially problematic to Norwegian defence planners, especially with the increase in potential range and payload capacity. Traditionally, Norwegian defence planning had been based on coastal artillery and naval mines, but with the invention of paratroops and or air-landed infantry, this meant that such preparations might no longer be sufficient in and of themselves. As the capability of modern aircraft grew year on year throughout the interwar era, the likelihood of Norway's own geographic remoteness, acting as a deterrent, seemed to shrink also. Germany in particular now possessed new operational tools which enabled the possibility of sudden and bold moves against Europe's collection of neutral states. Indeed, Norway's foreign minister for much of this period, Halfdan Kuhl, actually mistakenly drew the opposite lesson from these advances in military technology. But the increased range of modern aircraft had reduced the need for advanced bases and made control of Norwegian territory less important to the great powers than it had been in the last war. It was very difficult for Norway's army to adapt to the changing circumstances of the time. Like all armed forces, it carried a large amount of historical baggage that had helped shape it as an institution over the centuries. It had been founded as a territorial army in 1628 that initially covered the whole of southern Norway. There were traditionally close ties between the regiments and the local communities, and the Norwegian army increasingly came to reflect the relatively egalitarian social structure and attitudes of Norwegian society, with its comparatively weak aristocracy compared to Sweden, and built on the numerous independent farmers and fishermen that made up the bulk of Norway's population. The army also had very little direct combat experience to draw upon when making decisions, 
having fought only a limited number of skirmishes in 1808 and 1814, and by the time of a German invasion in 1940, the last shot fired in anger had been 126 years previous. With the benefit of hindsight, it might easily be claimed that it was simply impossible to combine the maintenance of an extensive neutrality guard to monitor the huge Norwegian borders, along with a more limited modern warfighting capacity given the political and economic circumstances of the interwar period and the geographical characteristics of the country. Only after 1935 were significant sums devoted to military spending, far too late to have much of an impact, after two decades of cuts, for which the responsibility lay with politicians of all major parties, backed by the overwhelming support of public opinion. When the attack on Norway finally came in April of 1940, most historians believe its armed forces were in a much weaker position compared to those of 1914. Now let us pivot away from Norway for a moment to consider the pressure and actual threat posed by the re-emergence of an aggressive Germany. From the moment the Nazi regime came to power in 1933, surrounding neutral states, including Norway, were subject to constant diplomatic pressure to police their own citizens and modify their own domestic policy. Berlin organised subsidies for pro-German newspapers and periodicals, and the government in Oslo was pressured to deny refuge to many anti-Nazi emigres who sought shelter in Norway. Of particular note at the time was the decision of the Norwegian Nobel Committee to award the Peace Prize for 1935 to the German dissident and concentration camp inmate Karl von Ossietzky, which aroused Hitler's particular displeasure, and only Germany's continued dependence on the import of Norwegian raw materials prevented an even greater diplomatic crisis. The Nazis also took care to support a cadre of Nazi sympathisers in the Nordic countries, including Norway, to form a core of potential conspirators which might be activated if German interests turned towards the north. Vidkun Quisling, the famous leader of the small Norwegian fascistic National Union Party, is perhaps the most famous of such individuals who were offered support, but was far from the only one. Quisling, as we will soon see, was to play a key role in the background to the German invasion of Norway in 1940. When assessing the actual threat posed by Germany, it is important to consider the question why was Norway not successful in remaining neutral in a Second World War as opposed to the First? It was certainly felt by many within Norway itself that Norwegian neutrality would prove more useful to Germany than previously, as Norway now supplied Germany with key industrial resources and provide access to Swedish iron ore via Narvik. So why risk such an increasingly profitable, dependent relationship by attacking? One of the key factors counting against these economic considerations, I think, are the lessons drawn by German naval planners from the events of the First World War, something already touched upon in the podcast on Denmark, but it certainly bears repeating here for Norway. The German Imperial Navy had spent the First World War essentially confined to port, a hugely expensive and substantial fleet reduced to impotence when confronted by the larger size of the British Royal Navy. The Battle of Jutland in 1916 had failed to alter this fundamental strategic calculus, and German naval leaders were forced to watch in frustration as the British naval blockade slowly undermined the entire German war effort. To cap it all off, German sailors then mutinied in the last weeks of the war, helping to bring about the neo-revolutionary state of affairs that effectively ended the war for Germany. Looking back on these events, German naval leaders were obviously going to be desperate to avoid repeating such an ignominious timeline in any future conflict. But in many ways, the problem in the interwar period remained the same as it had been since German unification in the 1870s. Britain still retained naval supremacy, the German navy in any future conflict would undoubtedly still be outnumbered. Lacking any kind of significant technological or doctrinal edge over their opponent, 
What was the new German Kriegsmarine to do to achieve any kind of victory? In 1914, the German Imperial Navy had been the second largest in the world, possessing no less than 17 dreadnoughts, five battlecruisers and a whole host of other vessels. The Kriegsmarine was but a shadow of this mighty force. When Britain actually declared war on Germany in 1939, the German Admiral Raider famously said that, and I quote, The surface forces are so inferior in number and strength to those of a British fleet, that even at full strength, they can do more than show that they know how to die gallantly. End of quotation. One man who proved particularly influential in confronting this issue was the German Vice Admiral Wolfgang Wegener, who had served under Tirpitz during the war, but who became deeply critical of his former superior's fleet and being strategy. In 1925, Wegener published De Zee Strategie des Weltkrieges, of a naval strategy of the World War. Werner felt that improving Germany's strategic geography was the only realistic way out of a strategic impasse, either through the seizure of bases along the Norwegian coast, or, and this seemed much less likely at the time, acquiring bases along the French Atlantic coast, which would enable the German navy to outflank Britain and secure direct access to the Atlantic Ocean, and possibly also acquire the Shetlands, the Faroes, and Iceland. Werner's ideas began to percolate within German naval circles, and soon reached a wide degree of acceptance. This meant that action against Norway was now a foremost concern for German naval planners looking to avoid the stagnation of the First World War, not despite, but because of the weakness of a German navy in 1939. German naval leaders had little confidence in the ability of the Wehrmacht to either break through the Maginot Line or win any decisive battle in the Low Countries against Anglo-French Belgian combined forces, and so turned their eyes northwards to Norway. With the German surface fleet lacking in size, attention also increasingly focused on the need to acquire bases for U-boats, with bases in Norway being seen as of immense value for the repair and supply of submarines operating in the Atlantic. Yet these military naval factors alone would probably, in and of themselves, not have been sufficient to outweigh the economic advantages of retaining Norwegian neutrality for Hitler, had it not been for the visit to Berlin in mid-December 1940 of the Norwegian fascist leader Vidkun Krisling. As Patrick Salmon has pointed out, it was at this point that ideological ambition and conspiratorial activity became fused with the narrower considerations of naval strategy previously outlined. Quisling was able to obtain an audience with Hitler, and he seems to have greatly influenced him by presenting supposedly firm evidence of British intentions to land in Norway, based on Quisling's notions of firm links between Norwegian Jewish politicians and their British counterparts. All these factors then combined to convince Hitler to order preparations for either a political coup led by Quisling or, more likely, a German invasion to take place at some point in the spring of 1940. In this context, the famous Altmark incident, in which 299 British prisoners of war were released from the hold of a German auxiliary ship Altmark in Norwegian territorial waters, served only to stiffen Hitler's resolve to act and accelerate preparations for a military solution. It was certainly not, in and of itself, as has sometimes been portrayed, a crucial reason for invasion. Churchill wanted to use the incident to start laying mines in Norwegian waters, but drew back from this due to the threat posed to the recently signed shipping agreement with Norway, especially as British oil stocks were at the time dangerously low, and they could ill afford the withdrawal of Norwegian tankers from British service. As one historian has written, once again a combination of moral scruple and economic self-interest deterred Britain from taking action against Norway. Now let us consider the threat posed by Britain to Norwegian neutrality that most historians conclude had also increased in the interwar period. The highly interventionist precedent set by British governments during the First World War 
meant that it was highly likely that right from the outset of any future European conflict, London would attempt to lock Norway into its economic blockade policy against Germany. British attitudes towards the supposed legal rights of European neutrals had hardened, and this is epitomised by Churchill's comment in December of 1939 when contemplating action against Narvik to halt iron ore shipments that, and I quote, we have a right, and indeed are bound in duty, to abrogate for a space some of the conventions of the very laws we seek to consolidate and reaffirm. Small nations must not tie our hands when we are fighting for their rights and freedom. End of quotation. Indeed, it would be safe to say that Churchill in particular seemed to have a mild obsession over the strategic value of Narvik. Whilst in the Admiralty in 1939, he stated that the great question for 1940, as for 1915, is whether and how the Navy can make its surplus force tell in shortening the war. And of course, the amphibious operations to seize Narvik and the Great Ironfield in Sweden present themselves in the light of decisive action. End of quotation. It was assumed that Norway, as before, would grudgingly fall into line with British strategic planning. Yet, at the same time, the possibility of German naval operations in Norwegian waters was actually given even less attention than in the period before 1914, due to the relatively weak state of the Kriegsmarine. Under Churchill's influence, the possibility of taking action in Norwegian waters or seizing Norwegian bases, as well as the danger that Germany might get there first, remained a recurrent topic of debate in the British War Cabinet before both became a reality in April of 1940. And during the period of the Soviet Winter War against Finland, such an expedition against Narvik very nearly became reality. It is also worth giving a few words on the threat posed by the Soviet Union to Norwegian neutrality. Initially, there seemed little to worry about. The close links between the Norwegian labour movement and the Soviet Communist Party might have been a perpetual source of anxiety to the Norwegian ruling elites, but were a definite positive factor in ensuring largely amicable relations between the two countries. This began to change in 1936, however, as Stalin demanded the expulsion of Trotsky from Norway, who had arrived in Oslo a year earlier and had been active in attempting to create a fourth communist international to undermine Stalinist authority, and where he also largely wrote the book The Revolution Betrayed, presenting himself, rather than Stalin, as the legitimate heir to Lenin's Bolshevik movement. Norway initially placed him under house arrest before expelling him in December, shipping him off to Mexico on a Norwegian-owned oil tanker. But it was only the Soviet invasion of Finland in November of 1939 that truly caused Norwegian politicians to worry as they were forced into mobilising a huge neutrality guard on the border between Finland and Norway. Prior to this, the notion of a Russian or Soviet menace was largely considered to be a Swedish obsession, but after the events in Finland, it was feared that the Soviet Union may now attempt to seize bases in the far north of Norway or land forces on Spitsbergen. Upon the outbreak of war in September of 1939, Norway immediately proclaimed its neutrality. But the blockade of Germany by the Allies did indeed, as the Norwegian government had feared, pick up right where it had left off in 1918. The Northern Barrage, discussed in the last podcast, which had been one of the last naval expedients of the war in 1918, became one of the first projects which Churchill sought to initiate on his return to the Admiralty in 1939. Just as in the last war, there followed months of difficult negotiations about war trade and shipping agreements with Britain. The Norwegian government proved to be a tough negotiating partner, as they were even more aware than in the last war about the value of their large merchant fleet, especially its oil tankers, which until the later US entry into the war carried as much as 40% of British oil across the oceans. The Norwegian government proved less tough in its dealings with Germany, however, and over the course of the next eight months, there were a series of incidents which indicated a much more accommodating attitude towards Berlin. 
Ultimately, the Oslo government believed that Britain could still be trusted to restrain itself from outright threats to Norway's territorial integrity, something that could not be said about the government in Berlin. Norwegian territorial waters were used by the German submarine U-38 in December of 1939 to sink three ships sailing for Britain containing iron ore, although the Norwegian government pretended that they might have been accidentally sunk by mines. The Norwegian foreign minister even went so far as to insinuate in a speech to the Storting that the British might have torpedoed the three ships themselves. The German fleet also frequently entered Norwegian waters to illegally seize shipping that it believed was carrying contraband destined for Britain, such as happened with the American vessel City of Flint. The outbreak of the Soviet-Finnish Winter War at the end of November greatly increased both the complexity and risks of Norway's neutrality policy. Now the eyes of strategic planners for both sets of belligerents were turned northward to Scandinavia, and plans were drawn up on both sides for possible intervention. In contrast to Sweden, Norway took a strictly neutral line towards the conflict, refusing to allow its citizens to volunteer to fight in the war. Norway's leaders cannot really be blamed for failing to anticipate the conditions of the phony war from November of 1939 to May of 1940, in which both sets of belligerents had both the resources and the time to contemplate adventures against small states on the strategic periphery, such as in particular Norway, but also Finland and Sweden. Without a major active land front for either side, the defensive resources available to smaller neutrals like Norway would prove less able to act as any kind of major deterrent. And it was certainly not just the Germans who looked northward to the European periphery to avoid fighting another indecisive Western Front. In February 1940, the Allies Supreme War Council authorised a fantastical plan whereby 100,000 men and huge quantities of material would occupy central Sweden via Narvik and await a probable German counterattack, with little idea of how to deal with the huge logistical problems posed by the climate and terrain. But the prospect of severing the vital Swedish iron ore from the German war economy was so very enticing to Allied leaders, particularly Churchill, and if that meant an occupation of Norwegian Narvik to do so, then so be it. For the French, military operations in Scandinavia would have the additional benefit of diverting war well away from France itself. It was only the end of a winter war in March of 1940 that finally postponed the operation, but the concept would no doubt have arisen again had the German invasion of France and the Low Countries not materialised a few months later. Whether or not such plans would ever have been executed is impossible to say. The Allied governments were never entirely sure how the Norwegian and Swedish governments would react to such uninvited guests, and would likely have drawn back from an invasion had the Norwegian government refused outright their permission to land. As it happened, on the 2nd of March, Oslo did decide not to offer resistance to the Allies and offer only a diplomatic protest, should they demand passage to Finland and Sweden via a landing in Narvik, but this was obviously not made public knowledge. Thankfully for the Norwegian government, a peace treaty signed soon after in Moscow spared them from the imminence of an Anglo-French landing. The main difference between the potential Anglo-French operations against Norway and that of the eventual German invasion were the more limited intentions on the Allied side. For the Western Allies, the occupation of Norway itself was never the goal, and the government in Oslo was, hopefully, either going to stand aside or even eventually participate. The goal instead was to halt the flow of Swedish iron ore to Germany via a landing in Norwegian Narvik, which would hopefully be unopposed, and then proceeding overland in a narrow corridor to northern Sweden. A full and outright occupation of the whole of Norway, as had already been planned in Berlin, was never intended to be on the cards. In the end, instead of an Anglo-French landing, it was decided instead to only lay mines in Norwegian waters around Narvik to complete the northern barrage and to at least halt the supply of Swedish iron ore from that direction. 
British diplomats argued that the U-boat sinkings in December had already effectively turned Norwegian territorial waters into a theatre of war, one the Norwegian Navy was ill-equipped to deal with, and so the British Royal Navy should now have freedom of action there. Although the subsequent Altmark incident did not precipitate immediate action by Britain, the willingness to indulge perceived Norwegian acquiescence to German neutrality breaches was shrinking fast by late March and April of 1940. British warships began to pursue German ships into Norwegian waters, and British aircraft began overhead flights, something that was also happening with German vessels and aircraft, and on the 28th of March, the Norwegian Foreign Minister ordered the internment of a German U-boat that had run aground near the southernmost tip of Norway, hoping to signal to both sides Norway's willingness to defend its neutral waters. By this point, however, the decision to invade had already long been taken in Berlin. When the British began Operation Wilfred on the 8th of April, intending to lay two huge minefields on the approaches to Narvik to force German shipping out of Norwegian waters and expose it to interception by the Royal Navy, the German forces were already well on their way. It is worth once again stressing the point that these British violations of Norwegian neutrality only served to reinforce the correctness of a decision that had already been taken by Hitler based on the interests of aggressive German naval planning and the conspiratorial thinking of Quisling. At the time, however, the Norwegian government did not see it that way, and tended to believe that it was the British mine-laying that had invited a German response. Only Britain, it was believed, had both the capacity to violate Norwegian neutrality and a vested interest in doing so. When the German invasion finally occurred, the Norwegian government was still fulminating over the British decision to begin mine-laying operations in its waters, and had little mental space to process any other events. Reports of mass German shipping heading north were dismissed, and when the Minister of War, Colonel Ljungberg, reported that survivors from one of the ships that had been torpedoed had been wearing German uniforms and claimed to have been heading for Bergen, the testimony had surprisingly little impact on debate in the starting. The only action taken was to order the mobilisation of two local battalions and commence mine laying in the Oslo Fjord, but by then, in the early hours of April 9th, 1940, the German ships, containing six divisions, had already reached the fjord itself and the invasion was about to begin. Just as had been feared by the Norwegian Chief of Staff, airfields captured in northern Denmark were promptly used to land troops in southern Norway, effectively occupying Oslo before a full order for mobilisation had even been given. The German Admiral Raider rightly declared that Operation Weser-Ubung, the codename for the attack, was contrary to all principles in the theory of naval warfare. The Kriegsmarine certainly paid dearly for the operation's success, with the decimation of its ships in the Norwegian fjords, in addition to the loss of the heavy cruiser Blücher already mentioned, Germany would also lose 10 destroyers in actions around Narvik, as well as a light cruiser sunk south of Oslo. The violation of Norwegian neutrality had come at a high price for the German surface fleet, and the value of Norway's relatively cheap naval mines and coastal artillery had clearly been proven. The Germans were quick to try and justify their actions, and only a few weeks after the invasion, the German Foreign Minister Ribbentrop, at a press conference, announced the publication of a collection of British and Norwegian documents, which purported to show active collusion, and that an Allied occupation of Norway had only been narrowly avoided by swift German preventative action. And now just to bring things to a close on this topic. From the morning of the 9th of April 1940, Norway was at war, and a de facto ally of Britain, but the Norwegian government in exile in London still did not yet formally abandon its theoretical commitment to neutrality, and it was not until May of 1941 that a formal military alliance was signed with Britain. It was difficult to acknowledge the bankruptcy of the foreign and security policies that had led to the occupation of their homeland, 
the policy of isolated neutrality, keeping Britain at arm's length while relying on British naval power as a last resort, had failed. It was not until a new wave of Norwegian politicians arose, coming from a group of Norwegian intellectuals in London, that the decision to abandon neutrality was taken. Norway swiftly moved from an advocate of neutrality to one of the more passionate advocates of post-war Atlantic cooperation, helping to push for the establishment of NATO after the war. Okay, that's everything for this week. If you have any questions about this episode, or just want to get in touch, then my email is historytompod at gmail.com. I'm also more than happy to provide any further reading suggestions for the issue covered in this podcast. Next time, the European Neutral Series will be soldiering ever on, moving only slightly eastwards to Norway's Scandinavian neighbour, Sweden, from its decline as a great power in its own right, to perhaps the foremost regional power in Northern Europe. I hope you'll be able to come back for that. So thank you very much for listening, and until next time. Yeah.